Hi, this is Michelle Carlo and Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. Today, we're opening with a song I remember from when, back when I was a child. Drawing behind the couch in my abuela's living room in Washington Heights. Listening to people talk about the movement, the establishment, the man, and events I had no control over that would impact my life in a big way. We'll get back to this in a little bit, but for now, the four tops. That was It's the Same Old Song from the Four Tops' second album back in 1965. A year we'll get to in a little bit. And as I record on this day uh, for my next Tuesday show, today is the Friday after Thanksgiving in 2016. And on this day, I have to constantly remind myself that it's really only the same old song if we allow it to be. For example, I know I'm getting a little metaphysical here, but for example, when I first proposed to do this Fish Out of Agua show in Radio Free Brooklyn, I had no clue how to do a radio show or what exactly this would entail, as you could probably tell from the first two episodes. But this is week three, and I can tell you that learning a whole new skill set in my 50s, yes, you heard that right, 50s, it's kind of scary and intimidating. But you know what? If I wanted to do this radio show, it had to be done. And I had to have the confidence in my intelligence and abilities from as being a performer for the past 20 years that I could do this and I must do this. Otherwise, time is going to pass me by. Time and technology would pass me by. And this is another reason why I also can relate to the millions of people in the United States who have no jobs now and no outlet and no voice who also feel that this time has passed them by, which is another reason why I wanted to do this show. One thing that uh, Fish Out of Agua is going to be doing is providing a forum for other artists of color and LGBTQ to share a bit of what they do and why their stories matter. 
We'll have an interview a bit later, but right now, I want to get some stories started, and I'd like to set a mood. So I'm going to take you on the Wayback Machine, or should I call it the Way, Way Back in the Day Machine, <laughs> back to 1953, the year my parents met, and a song that didn't actually come out that year, but speaks to me about them and how they met. Somewhere. It'll be all right, I know it. We're really together now. But it's not us. It's everything around us. Then I'll take you away, where nothing can get to us. Not anyone or anything. There's a place for us. Somewhere a place for us peace and quiet and open air wait for us somewhere on Radio Free Brooklyn. This song, Somewhere, was from the movie soundtrack of West Side Story, which reminds me of what my parents had to overcome for them to get together in Spanish Harlem, El Barrio, at that time, even though they were both Puerto Rican. New York City was totally in a different headspace back in 1953, the year my parents met. Average wages were $4,000, the average cost of a new house was $9,550, and a new car? <laughs> a brand new car for $1,650. And get this, the brand new state-of-the-art Kodak brownie flash camera? The kind that when your parents used it, you would have purple lightning bolts and gold lightning bolts going in front of your eyes for the next 12 minutes? Well, that was only $13. Also happening in 1953, Elizabeth II was crowned Queen of England. Dwight David Eisenhower was inaugurated the President of the U.S. along with his Vice President, Richard Milhouse Nixon. Jonas Salk invented the first polio vaccine, uh, actually developed the first polio vaccine, saving untold millions of children and families from living in fear each spring. Also in 1953, the first successful climb of Mount Everest happened. McCarthyism, which was um, the backlash for politics against communism or what were perceived to be communists, reared its ugly head 
and mouth and teeth. Playboy's first issue appeared with Marilyn Monroe on its cover and centerfold. The movies were all about Monroe in 1953. How to Marry a Millionaire and Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. And also the science fiction classic The War of the Worlds opened. Born in this year of 1953 were Pierce Brosnan, Tim Allen, Cindy Lauper, Christine Ebersole, and did I mention my parents met that year? <laughs> so here we go back in the Wayback Machine. And if you remember what the Wayback Machine was, you have to be about as old as I am. Did I someone say 53? <laughs> so let's start with chapter four, A Fish Out of Agua. Jackie O and the boy from East 106th Street. It was a hot summer's day a year and a half after my mother had won her block's first television. She, her best friend Daisy, a girl named Lydia, were walking along East 106th Street on their way to a party when Daisy stopped the girls to chat up a group of boys hanging out on the front stoop of a three-story apartment building. On the second floor of that building, lying on the sofa and listening to a New York Giants versus Dodgers baseball game on the radio, was my father. He stuck his head out of the window when he heard Daisy's loud laughter and saw my mother. Years later, he would tell me that he ran downstairs like hell because he was afraid that if he didn't get there quickly, my mom would disappear. The person who made up the saying, good things come in small packages, must have seen my mother at the age of 20. When my father looked out the window that day and saw her for the first time, she was petite and curvy, wearing tight, but not too tight, red capri pants, a white-on-white, Swiss-dot sleeveless blouse tied at her tiny waist, a black patent leather belt, and black patent leather wedge sandals. When he got downstairs to the stoop for a closer look, he saw her liquid dark brown eyes, flawless ivory complexion, and jet black wavy hair. He would later learn that she slept every night with her hair wrapped around orange juice cans in order to tame its tight curls and that there were other things that she was equally rigid about. But on this day, he thought that he would willingly drown in those eyes. His tongue turned to sandpaper and filled his mouth, and he, who had an answer for everything, could not think of one thing to say. My mother looked at the boy standing in front of her. He was good-looking, at five foot nine inches tall, with a slim, athletic build from years of recreational stickball baseball, and his favorite, dancing. He had brown wavy hair with a cowlick that fell in a curve over his forehead, a light brown ruddy complexion, and a small cleft in his angular chin. My mother would later learn just how often he relied on his good looks and charm to get him through tough situations. But that day, my mother got butterflies waiting for him to talk to her. She was attracted to him, but she would not chase him, even at 20. My mother was absolutely a lady. Rudy didn't talk to Lucy that day. Instead, he talked to Daisy and Lydia and found out every place they were going to be for the rest of that summer. So from Central Park to Orchard Beach to the Starlight Room's famous dances at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel, Rudy appeared and tried to get my mother to notice him, but to no avail. He did become great friends with Daisy and Lydia, though, he danced with them and introduced them to his other friends, while my mom remained a mystery. A mystery, that is, until the night Daisy got toasted. 
The girls usually had a cocktail or two on the nights they went dancing. My mother's signature drink was one classic martini with olives. It made her feel refined and in control. Daisy, on the other hand, she liked whatever was sweet and fruity and lots of it. Pina coladas, sidecars, and daiquiris all made her happy. And one night, Daisy had all three on the same night and became so happy that my mother thought it best if they immediately went home. My mother looked around for Lydia to help her with Daisy, but Lydia had already, already left with her boyfriend. And as my mother steered Daisy out of the hotel, trying not to draw attention, my father appeared. He immediately hailed a cab, but after Daisy got sick in the back seat, they were kicked out, still 30 blocks away from their destination. In the hour it took to walk to 99th Street and Lexington Avenue, where Daisy had moved, my father told every joke, story, and anecdote he could think of to keep the girls entertained and to keep Daisy from barfing again. He told them about the pigeons he kept on different roofs, the horses he used to take care of at the West Side Riding Stables, and the turkey that he and his brothers once had as a pet when he was a child. Lucy saw there was another person besides Daisy who could make her laugh. She also saw that Rudy had paid for the cab, argued with the driver when they were thrown out, and had walked both of them home without complaining or asking for anything in return. It was the first time Lucy had seen a man ever take care of a woman so unselfishly. And by the time Rudy left her on her stoop with just a handshake and a see you soon, I hope, Lucy was in love. Initially, neither one of their families was pleased about the relationship. Neither my mother or my father was their parents' favorite child, and they both knew this. Grandma Izzy, a city person, thought my mother's family, coming from a small town in the mountains, were hibaros. But my mother's perfectly put-together outfits, perfect manners, and soft, perfectly pitched voice. Oh yes, my mom was a Jackie O well before Jacqueline Bouvier ever met John F. Kennedy. My mom won over Grandma Izzy's heart. And even Grandma Izzy had to admit that my mother was a lady, and therefore almost too good for her son. Papa Julio, the same man who had almost forced my mother to drop out of high school, didn't like it that my father hadn't gone to school past ninth grade. But my dad liked having money in his pocket, and he quit school so he could work anywhere. He sold beer at the polo grounds until he was fired for being underage. He made bread at an Italian bakery until he was fired for being Puerto Rican. And then he got his driver's license and got a job driving a forklift, which he kept. When my father came to my mother's family's apartment to watch TV, he would accidentally leave a little change in the sofa cushions for Ophelia and Dulce to find. He even tried to fix up the teenage Carmen with his younger brother Papo, which sadly didn't take. And eventually, his charm and genuine goodwill touched my mother's family the way it had my mother. And Grandma Mari was glad her oldest daughter would finally be taken care of. So Lucy took a chance and said yes for the second time in her life. She did love my father, but... She also married him to get out of the house, which was not as cynical then as it would be today. 
Because back in the 50s, back in El Barrio, in that culture, you needed a man in, or, in order to leave home. You didn't do it by yourself. If you wanted to get out, you needed to be rescued. My father, who was sure from the first time he set eyes on my mother, married her in part because she was the most beautiful thing he'd ever seen. And he also thought that she would give him the love and recognition he didn't get from his family. They both wanted their lives together to be completely different from the way they had been when they were growing up. Their children would definitely have American names, and they would grow up speaking only English. There would be no societal stigma of bilingualism, no difficulty in school because of switching from one language to another, no being teased or left back, no being called names. There would be no language or any other cultural barrier. Nothing would keep Rudy and Lucy's children from having the life they both felt they were denied. Rudy and Lucy would figuratively and literally keep my brother Kevin and me as far away from the Finca, the Fogon, and El Barrio as they could get. And we're back with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. Yes, my mom was known as the Jackie O of East 103rd Street. And I think that was also around the time when Jacqueline Bouvier Kennedy did start going out with um, John F. Kennedy. So, yeah, if you look at a picture of my mother from back then and you look at a picture of Jackie O, there is an uncanny resemblance. It's funny how things work out like that, huh? (laughs) Well, getting back to 1953, another thing was that life had or was returning to normal for most of New York City and the United States, as World War II had been over for a few years. But for many GIs of color who fought side by side during World War II, their dreams of equality were shattered when they came home to find the same old song. No jobs, no hope. But El Barrio was not and has not only been home to black and Latino populations. As we'll see in our featured artist of this week, stand-up comedian and solo theatrical artist, Aladdin Ula, who is of Bangla heritage and who also grew up in, you guessed it, El Barrio. So here's our interview featured artist for the week, Aladdin Ula on Fish Out of Agua. Hi, this is Michelle Carlo and Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn, and I'm sitting here. Oh, my God, we're doing, like, the total sneak shit today. <laughs> I'm sitting here with my home-skidded Aladdin Ula. Say hi, Aladdin. Hello. I hope we don't get arrested. No, we're not going to be arrested. <laughs> oh, my God. I feel like it's, like, 90s or, like, I'm, we're sneaking. Um, I We, we like, kind of just, like, like hi- hijacked we, this hotel. We bum-rushed this hotel. Yeah, don't say the name. <laughs> we'll say it later. Yeah, we're in the auditorium of a basement of a hotel. Yeah, well, we were already asked to leave, like, one place because we were not guests because I told the truth like a dummy. But then if we would have told the truth, I probably would have had, like, buy a $14 drink for both of us. I know, and it's so appropriate because I reminisce when I used to hang out with graffiti artists here and we used to do stuff on the down low, and now we're here on the down low. Again. So let me let me um, backtrack a little bit. Aladdin Ula is a stand-up comedian and a solo theatrical performer who is has a bunch of shows going on, so we're going to be talking with him in a couple of minutes about the work that he does, the fabulous work that he does, and why. One of the reasons why I love Aladdin so much is that he was one of the 
people that I picked when I used to do my It Came From New York storytelling shows. And what especially endeared me to him was that he grew up in Spanish Harlem, the neighborhood that my parents grew up in. Although he's, he's Pakistani, right? Bangla, Bangla. Bangla. Bangla Sorry. Yeah. I know, that's, okay. that's like if you would have called me Dominican and I'm really Puerto Rican. <laughs> it's similar, right? You're ready to fight. Uh, no. All right. So anyway. So, um, yeah, so I was the first one in my family born in, in America. So I was raised, born and raised in uh, East Harlem, El Pajlio. And I grew up uh, amongst, like, right in the birth of hip-hop. And during the early 80s, when it really kind of exploded, I was hanging out with a bunch of graffiti artists, breakdancers, and it's like New York was, like, really at a different time. And, um, you know, now it's like I've kind of morphed from comedian to writer, director, and I'm working on documentary films. And that was kind of by accident because I was part of the Emerging Writers Group of the Public Theater, and I worked on a, a trilogy. And my buddy who was getting his PhD at uh, NYU wanted to do his dissertation on the research that I had done about my family and them coming to East Harlem and marrying Puerto Ricans and African Americans. So the book kind of exploded. It came out a year ago. It's called Bengali Harlem. Ooh. And uh, it's on Harvard Press. You can get it on Amazon. And we're turning that into a documentary, which should be finished by next year, hopefully. That's fantastic. That's right, because you were away for like a, uh, eight months or something? Yeah, I was away. In the motherland. Yeah, I went to Bangladesh, and we shot all this beautiful stuff. So I kind of became a writer-director by accident because I just got tired of doing the stereotypical stuff. So instead of complaining about it, I just thought, well, why not just get behind the camera and start you know, writing and directing? So that's kind of how I kind of where I am now. I've been directing and writing and working on a new series that we're going to shoot next month. Um, so I, I kind of accidentally backed into writing and directing. Mm. I think most of the comedians that I know kind of got into writing because they sort of felt it was just a natural you know, evolution, progression to that. And that's kind of where I feel now. So it's always weird for me to go come back to New York. Like I travel a lot now, so when... I, before I met you today, I took a walk around Soho. It, it feels like another world. I feel like a foreigner in New York now. It's, I know, it's crazy. It's you, weird. You feel, I, I don't feel like New York you is feel part like, of my home You anymore. feel like a stranger in your own city. I know. It's, it's yeah. like, it, I, said, I say this all the time. When we were young, and I'm going to say we're the same age. That's all right. Yeah, yeah. That's all right. It's all good. It's all good. We all remember that 90s, man, and some of the 80s, too. Anyway, I always say that um, when we were young, like very young, people would come to New York because it was the only place where they could pursue their dreams. Yeah. And they came here on a promise and a prayer, and they came here because they loved what New York City stood for because they couldn't be who they were, where they came from, and they wanted to make the city their own. And if they yeah. got married, they would raise their children here. But now, people treat this place like it's a disposable friggin' amusement park. But it's also, too, like when you travel, like this is what trips me up about traveling. Like when I go to other countries, right? Like the economic difference, you have to travel miles. In New York, it's like across the street. You know, like one, like on 96th Street was the Mason-Dixon line, you would have like poor people and across the street it'd be millionaires. Now what's surreal for me is like, they're moving into the hood. So I know. Now, so it's weird for me. So when I go like to the South Bronx, cause I remember back in the day, 
I dated someone from Brook Avenue and Cypress Avenue, that area. Mm-hmm. And now, like, they're having boutiques and all that in, like, the South Bronx. Oh, they're calling it Sobro. Ill. Yeah, and I'm Ill. in close Spanish Harlem Spa. Huh? No. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. I know. I con you. So, I please. So, I know. So, so it's weird, you know, like, I don't see the it as a neighborhood no more. I just see it as, yeah. like, well, it's just where people are occupying space now. Yeah. I mean, you know, but New York City has evolved over time. It will evolve again, you know, 50 years ago. I mean, and then 50 years from now, people are going to be, but I can't imagine people saying, oh, they're tearing down the condos to build space stations. I mean, like, what, what, like, what's going to be next? Like, you know, like in my neighborhood in El Barrio, we used to have those botanicas Mm -hmm. where you could get like, you would joke like someone being a back, you know, killing chickens, you know, and then they'd have all this incense and stuff. So now the botanicas are gone for like 7-Elevens. Mm. And I feel like there should be a rule of you replace something cultural, you should put something cultural back in its place, not a 7-Eleven. I know, right? That's, like, that's, how do you, that's, how do you replace weird. a botanica with a, with a 7-Eleven? I guess it's worshipping at a different altar. Worshipping a Slurpee. I want to get back to um, something that we were talking about a few minutes ago, which was you getting into writing and producing your own shows. I know that for me, I started doing my own work because I could not get cast. It was like whenever I went to a casting, if it was for a Latin person, I was not Latin enough. And then if I went to a casting for a Caucasian person, there was just something off about me. So when I wasn't getting cast in anybody else's work, and I was like, well, screw this. I'm just going to write and perform for myself, which is what I've been doing for like the past 15 years. Yeah, and it is weird because you and I kind of have that same similarity. Like we... Once we show our New York accent, like I go to auditions when I start out, they're like, "Yeah, we're looking for a terrorist." I'm like, <laughs> I don't, I, "I'm not. I'm so far from the terrorist." Well, what about a cab driver? And I would just do impressions of my dad, but I would feel like I'm so not into it. And every agent or manager that I was into, that I was being represented, they would try to sell it. Like, for the Latin, you're going to make a lot of money. This is the way to go. And I do it, but my heart wasn't into it. I love doing stand-up, but, you know, the jump to TV and film was like, I'd have to do this new minstrel show. And mm. I just, it's like my heart wasn't in it. And it's funny because, you know, Aziz Ansari did it in his new episode. Yes. And I was talking about that 15 years ago, about how, you know, in the auditions, it'd be me, Asif Manvi, and another actor, Ajay Naidu. We used to go to all the auditions, and we would joke about how they'd always ask us to do it with an accent. And we're like, right, they always, you always have to use yeah, that. In, yeah. the, in the name of Allah, we will desecrate your nation. And I'm like, when do I just get to be like a New Yorker or a friend without an accent that's trying to blow up a building or take someone to Queens? So I just felt like the casting directors were, they didn't know that they were racist. So it was kind of weird, like, we would have to be subtle and say, well, you know, like, people don't really talk like that. And, you know, everyone in New York who's Muslim doesn't really talk. At one time, this casting director, it was for law and order. I don't care saying it. They said, do it with a Muslim accent. A Muslim accent. <laughs> Ideals. I was like, oh, What's a my God. And what did you do? What was your Muslim accent? I, I told look, him there's no do, such thing as a Muslim accent. Oh, you should have tried to do something terrible. Well, the worst, I got kicked you out. You should have done a British accent. No, this is the best. I got <laughs> I got kicked out because they said do it with an accent. So I did it with an uh, Irish accent. Sure, the neighborhood. And they were like, get out, get out. They didn't think well, it was funny. Well, good for you. Well, I think it's funny. And then I, then I realized, okay, well, then I don't want to be going to auditions. And then I just kind of like, I, I did it backwards. People go from theater to film. I went from film back to theater. And I got to the public theater, and we was in the emerging writers group, and I just kind of really studied the craft of playwriting and just kind of started from back to basics and how do you write a good story and how do you, you know, really kind of navigate your career and, like, work that you would be proud of. 
not the, work that you're like when your friends would be like, "Yo, when you gonna be playing the next terrorist?" Oh <laughs> my god! So your work, I'm gonna take it, is very personal. It is, and you know the solo show that I did, I got to travel all over the world with it. And um, you know, the funny thing about theater, even if you're a success, maybe 900 people will see it. I know, right? <laughs> it's true. So even theater, even like when you're touring stand up, it's like your yeah. mother will be like, "When you gonna get a real job?" Like, I know. Please. And, and you know, like all of your friends, like you grew up with, it's like, yo, man, when you gonna get your own series? When you gonna blow up? When you gonna be, you know, the man? Yeah. It's hard to explain like this in with your friends. Like, no, it doesn't work like that. You know? I, I have a cousin that's asked me when I'm gonna be in a movie with Jennifer Lopez. Yeah, yeah. You and I'm kinda... just like, oh, next month. I mean, what? How do you answer something like that? I had a relative. Oh, they'll tell, tell you me, like, why don't you speak to Mark Anthony? Can yeah, Mark exactly, Anthony exactly. Well, Lynn Manuel Miranda. Oh, Lynn, if you're listening, we we need jobs now. And like somebody had said to me once that I, I wrote a book. I mean, Fish Out of Agua. That's what this yeah. show was about. And someone said that I had a relative tell me once that the book didn't count because it wasn't on the New York Times bestseller list. Yeah, it didn't count. But you know, we're joking about this, but therein lies like the yeah. deeper question is like, yeah. what's the definition of success? And why do our stories matter, Aladdin? Yeah. Why why shouldn't we, as as POC people of color, artists of color, Latino, and um, oh God, you know, in Bangla, kind of, like, do we need to just shut up, or yeah, do we know, need to keep talking? I know, say we need to keep talking. And I, I think the work, it, it's really about like, how do you feel passionate about what you're doing because. You know, one of my mentors early on was Paul Mooney, and Paul was Richard Pryor's writer, and he's, mm. he's kind of known on the underground. He's, you know, a lot of people do know him, but compared to, say, like Pryor or George Carlin or Seinfeld, he isn't a mainstream comedian. But when I would see Paul Mooney, I would say, wow, I don't know a lot of comedians who are funnier than Paul. And the thing about Paul, he was like a jazz musician. People knew he was good. And I always thought, like, that is, like, the way to kind of approach your art is really... Are you getting to the truth? Are you yes. really doing something that, that lasts, that has longevity? And that's kind of like where I kind of made a transition in my career where I said, you know, I was trying to become famous, and I was in my early 20s, and I was doing okay. But then I realized, you know, I don't feel proud of this work. I don't stand by it. And, you know, once I hit 30, I was like, okay, I got to really do work that I'm a lot more proud of. I what what happened when you hit 40? Oh, my God. You start, <laughs> I just started drinking more. like... <laughs> <laughs> We're going to get busted. We are, I mean, <laughs> you don't know what we did, people. We basically this just walked into we, a freaking hotel. We, this is like typical. And we ain't, we ain't dressed good either. This, this is like. <laughs> we'll dress the right. This, but. this is like typical hood stuff. They told us we couldn't be in a lobby, so we was like, fuck this. We went downstairs to the basement and bum rushed the auditorium. Yeah, we're like sitting here in the private screening room and stuff, and I even went and closed the door. I just hope we can get out. Yeah. Oh, my God. This is crazy. I so, um. To tell me a bit about the work that you're doing right now and where we can find you. Well, I'm, I'm finishing up the documentary Bengali Harlem. Uh, it is, you can check out the website, B-E-N-G-A-L-I, Bengali Harlem. And that's also the name of the book, Bengali Harlem. And we're about to shoot a series, which we're uh, still kind of in negotiations. We're going to shoot the first episode, and that's the work that I really, really like. It's a screwball comedy about... Uh, a guy who's really a dope, who's played by myself, who accidentally uh, gets mistaken for shooting the video of an officer who kills a uh, young black man. Oh, so, got so, topical. Yeah, so Shoot. It, it's... Uh, oh, my God. It's been really catching a lot of steam, and we're just going to shoot the first two episodes and kind of see where it goes from there. So I'm kind of in the midst of still meetings and all that showbiz stuff, so I'm kind of doing that. And... Um, 
Yeah, that's been taking up my time for the next wow. three three months. That's what I'm probably going to be so doing. So 2017, we're going to be hearing and seeing some big things from you. Yeah, and I've also been approached because Trump is back. I'm doing the solo show, and the solo show was the one that I developed with Public Theater, Dishwasher Dreams. And you don't know how much I admire you for that. That is my dream, is to be on stage at the Public Theater. I, I want to get into that program. You know, it was funny because there's a, a, a friend of mine. He's on The Daily Show. I don't want to mention his name. He would always say, you know, we're never going to get to a public theater, a public theater. And uh, when I did one of my plays, he was there at the public theater, and I just felt like, well, this is how it's got to be done. I believe there's people of color who I love, and I've put them in my plays, and I just feel there's so much talent. There's so much black and brown people out there that are not giving the love. And, and beige. Yeah, well, brown, brown, you know. Beige, you know. But it's just like, you know, that's, that's, I don't think it's just writers. I also think, like, we have yeah. to start taking over. That's why we I'm do. I really, there was a point a couple of years ago where I was like, ah, this business sucks. But then when I see, like, Atlanta and all that, Atlanta's the first TV show that has an all-black writing team. It shows you that. Wow. I think I did not know that. Yeah, there's a new generation that's taking over. We don't need to ask permission Good. to do the work. I think the internet and there's this whole, what I call a hip-hop aesthetic, like, you know, you wouldn't allow us in your clubs, we'll break dance on the corner. You won't allow us into your galleries, we'll just tag graffiti all over. I think we got to get back to the basics yeah. of that. You won't let us into your lobby in the hotel, we'll go downstairs. We go downstairs <laughs> and we hijack it. <laughs> We're in the auditorium. All right, I, I think I, I, well, we're running on the fifteen-minute mark, so we're going to like close it and get out and not get greedy. So this is Michelle Carlin from Fish Out of Aqua talking to Aladinula, who's got a lot of good stuff going on. It's been fun. It's been real. All right, happy Thanksgiving, everybody. All right, the cops are coming. Gobble gobble gobble. And we're back with Fish Out of Aqua on Radio Free Brooklyn. <laughs> I could tell you that that's one of the best feelings in the world. In New York City, to feel like you got away with something? Totally. So, back to Fish Out of Agua, the book. One of the things that I used as a device to drive the stories forward were letters. Letters that I imagined were written to me by the protagonists of the stories that followed. They appear quite often in the book, usually like before a section that's particularly poignant or where something monumental happens. And these letters often also, if, if it's from my grandmother or my mom, contain some sort of biblical references because they were storefront Pentecostal Christians. So hopefully nobody is offended by them quoting the Bible. So in honor of these imaginary letters, I would like to play a song from approximately the time of the next stories, which would be 1965. It's by the Bach Tops, and it's called The Letter. Give me a ticket for an aeroplane Ain't got time to take a fast train Lonely days are gone, I'm a-going home My baby has wrote me a letter I don't care how much money I gotta spend Got to get back to my baby Though the days are gone, I'm a-going home My baby just wrote me a letter When she wrote me a letter Said she couldn't live without me no more Listen, Mr. Can't you see I got to get back to my baby once more Anyway, yeah I a ticket for an aeroplane Got time to take a fast train. Lonely days are gone. I'm a going home. My baby used to hook me a little. 
And that song was by the Box Tops, and it was called The Letter. It actually came out in 1967, but uh, 1965, 67, close enough, right? <laughs> well, the time of the next two stories that I'm going to read from Fish Out of Agua was 1965, which kind of was a pivotal year. Things were changing a lot. Bob Dylan and music had gone electric. People were starting to take this new mind-expanding drug called LSD. And there was a lot of unrest going on in um, the United States and also the world. In the United States, the March on Washington had been two years before. And in 1965, uh, Martin Luther King led another march in Alabama from Selma to Montgomery. And I think 1965 was also the year where those two activists were murdered. I should have looked that up. I'm sorry, people. I should have wikied it. But I think that's also what happened. Um, in 1965, the Civil Rights Voting Act did happen. That was the act that guaranteed African Americans the right to vote. Think about that. Only 52 years ago, people. Why did it take so long? Race relations were on everyone's mind that year. Um, other things that kept people distracted, your income in 1965 was annual income average was $6,450. The average cost of a house was $13,600. A brand new car, $2,650. You would pay an average of $118 a month to rent a one-bedroom apartment. That's crazy. Like the cable bill is more than that now. Oh, my God. Other things that happened in 1965, the Vietnam War escalated big time that year. The Gemini space program began, and that paved the way to um, landing on the moon a few years later. The Great Northeast Blackout that happened on November, November 8th. New York City and most of the eastern seaboard was blacked out completely. Famous movies of that time were Dr. Zhivago, Goldfinger, The Sound of Music. The miniskirt was introduced in London by, I believe, Betsy Johnson in her store called Paraphernalia. The Beatles played Shea Stadium here in New York. Yes, Shea Stadium, which is now City Field. I liked it better when it was Shea Stadium. Sorry. Um, the book Dune was first published. Born in 1965, Ben Stiller. J.K. Rowling, Sarah Jessica Parker, and Robert Downey Jr. And also in 1965, Malcolm X was assassinated at the Audubon Ballroom in Washington Heights, just a few blocks away from where I was living when these stories happened. And now, Chapter 5 of Fish Out of Agua, La Muñeca, which begins with one of the letters I spoke about before, this letter from my grandmother. La muñeca, which means the doll. Mija, amor, mi muñeca, I love you. I love you with all my heart. I love you so much it hurts for me to write this to you. Even though I know you cannot read this yet, because you have just begun the escuela, still, I'll write this to you because I love you. I write to you because these are the things I cannot tell you. Ay, mija, it is very complicated, very complicada, and you cannot understand, not now and maybe, maybe not ever. 
But I am writing this to you anyway because at least you will know that I did try to explain to you and maybe, maybe that will make a difference someday. Maybe it will make some things better for you. You, mi amor, are the sola, the only colorada in our familia. You have the pecas, the freckles of my, como se dice, of my mother of husband and the same big eyes that are questions, always questions for which there can never be an answer. And every time I look at you, I see your mother and I see the face, the skin, the eyes of Beltran, mi esposo verdad, my true husband, the only man I loved and will ever love. And I also see him always in your mother. And perhaps that is why I cannot, I, I did not, I could not, I, I have not. Yes, mija, Papa Julio is not your grandfather. But you will probably never, ever meet Beltran. He was lost to us, lost to your mother and me many years ago. But Papa Julio is a good man, an honest man, and hardworking man, and he brought your mother and me to this country so we could have a better life. Because we were sola, mija. We were alone, and we owe him a lot. We owe him our lives. But I have to tell you the truth. Papa Julio is not the padre of your mother. And maybe, maybe, mija, that... That is part of why she is not feeling well now. Your mother is not well, mija. Your mother is not well and she has to go live with the doctors for a little while. She has to live with the doctors so they can make her be well. And that is why you and your brother are coming here to live with Papa Julio and me. But you don't have to be afraid, mija. You do not have to be afraid in the name of Gloria Jesus. Ay. Life is complicado, so complicado. When you are older, you will see that life is hard for a woman, so hard. And you will see why things had to be a certain way. But now, you will be safe. I am, I am your abuelita. I will watch over you. I will protect you. I will do for you what I did not and could not do for your mother. And if you cannot forgive me, I hope that you could at least understand. I no puedo escribir más ahora. I cannot write anymore. He is coming. Mija, yo te promeso. I promise you, I will watch over you and protect you because you are my muñecita, my little doll, my love. Because I look at you and I remember. May el Señor watch over you. Guadanos with the Psalms, Los Salmos 23, 27, 91, and 121. Grandma Mari. There was never any explanation from my Grandma Mari, then or ever. It probably would not have made a difference if there had been. And now, Chapter 6 of Fish Out of Agua. La Vergüenza y la sinvergüenza, the shame and the shameless. 
I was five years old and lying on my stomach underneath the window and behind the couch in my grandmother's living room. I was drawing quietly, very quietly. I had learned very quickly to be quiet in that apartment because if I wasn't, all sorts of punishment, smacks, gokotasos, or a whip from a belt snaking through my clothes or sometimes even against my bare bottom would be swift and hard. I would never be punished like that for my grandmother, never for my abuelita who I knew adored me. And I would never be punished like that from any of my titis, my aunties, either. Not even from Tite Ophelia, whose sharp eyes, sharp chin, and even sharper tongue I instinctually kept far away from. It was my grandmother's husband I had to watch out for, Papa Julio, the man who told me never to call him abuelo, never to call him grandfather, because although he was married to my abuelita, he was not my grandfather. My mother was in a hospital. Today, the illness she had then, postpartum depression, is recognized and treated with kindness, support groups, and patients. It elicits symp sympathy and empathy from families and strangers. It's something that you can completely recover from or even used today as an excuse to get away with murder. But in 1965, it was treated with seclusion, observation, and medication. And it caused whispers and speculation everywhere your name was mentioned. It was considered a weakness, a character flaw, and a secret shame that would follow and define you for the rest of your days. I remember the apartment was cold. My mother had been gone this time just a little over a week, but it felt like I had hardly seen her that year at all. I was copying a pair of kittens from an engraved copper plate onto a brown paper bag. My mother had handmade the plate for me as a birthday gift, and even though my birthday had long passed, I had just received it the day before. The two kittens were playing with the ball of yarn. I could easily draw the kittens, but no matter how many times I erased and started over, I just could not get the twists and turns in the yarn to come out right. I was going to give the finished drawing to my mother, and I wanted it to be perfect. And as I struggled with the drawing, familiar voices interrupted my concentration. There were my aunts, Diti Ophelia, Diti Carmen, and Diti Dulce. The first voice I heard was Diti Ophelia. The problem with Michelle is, huh, our sister Lucy brought her up to be white. This wasn't the first time I had overheard a remark like that from my sanctuary behind the couch. My drawings and my color forms and my Barbies had helped me to find out that my mother had twice before been taken away to a hospital and that my father couldn't take care of my brother and me by himself, which was why we were living with Abuelita and Papa Julio. But in Papa Julio's and his daughter's eyes, there had always been something wrong with my mother. Something that made her so different from them that it made something wrong with me, too. 
because I always talk too loud or laugh too loud or jump too much or ran too fast or I dropped and I spilled and I broke things and I was always caught where I wasn't supposed to be. I was always caught where I wasn't supposed to be. My aunties were sitting on a plastic-covered sectional couch in the large, bright, many-windowed living room with French doors, whose centerpiece was the huge wooden Philco television hi-fi radio console my mother had won in a St. Lucie's church lottery back in Spanish Harlem almost 15 years before. Um, don't, didn't you think Lucy looked better last week, though? I mean, didn't you? I mean, she was talking to us again. That was Titi Dulce, my mother's youngest sister, and the one who looked most like my mother. Petite and shapely, with pale skin and almost black hair. Dulce, who was about to turn 21, had just gotten married and had just suffered her first miscarriage. She would always play with me and give me extra hugs every time she came over, which was never often enough. Oh, I had Pastor Ramirez lead an intercession for Lucy last night. We do not want her to come home too soon. Remember what happened last time? That was Titi Carmen, the second oldest, the Hamona, the old maid. At just 25, she already appeared postmenopausal. She would never get married. Her thick legs and squinty eyes would ensure that, as well as the oily black hair that ran rampant up her legs, down her arms, between her pancake breasts, and occasionally sprouting from her brown double chin. She, like my abuelita, was very, very religious. It was good for her. Well, what are we supposed to do about Michal? Titi Ophelia repeated. Titi Ophelia was 23, tall, slim, and too quick with skin the color of a double cup of cafe con leche and a personality with a kick to match. Every other week, she smoked a different brand of cigarettes. Every other month, she dyed her hair a different color. Every couple of years, she had a new husband. I'm sure if she was your friend, she was delightful to be around. Only, I wasn't her friend. I told you what she told Mommy, as if our father would ever do such a thing like that. Who taught Michelle how to lie like that, huh? You know who? Lucy, that princessa of a sister of ours, always fixing herself up as if she was the queen of Spain. <laughs> Pretending she's not a tregenia. I do not care how blanquito she thinks she is, but I stop it, Ophelia. And stop waving that cigarette at me. They smell like caca. Well, good, Dulce, because maybe then for once I can smoke a whole pack by myself. Anyway, if you ask me, that's what got her sister locked up. Lies. And Michelle is going to turn out just the same if we do not teach her. Huh. Next time, I'm going to put some Tabasco on that tongue of hers, and nobody is going to... Titi Carmen warned, Cállate, both of you, Dios mío, she is here. My pencil had rolled to the end of the couch. The three of them turned around as I scrambled to retrieve it. And the conversation stopped. Michelle, Ninita, what are you doing? Titi Dulce asked me. Oh, look, she's throwing dos gatitos, gatitos. Very nice, Michelle. Very nice. Titi Carmen always tried to keep the peace. But then 
the deal failure. <laughs> Drawing, lying. Neither one will ever get her anywhere. Mija, why don't you go finish that in your room and let us talk, huh? Good girl. Titi Ophelia didn't wait for an answer. She just turned her back on me and they all continued speaking again. In Spanish. Spanish was the mystery language to me. The language grown-ups use for celebrations, lost tempers, and secrets. And since my mother and father had always only spoken English to Kevin and me, that meant I wouldn't find out when my mother was coming home or what being white was, or, most important, what I had been lying about. I couldn't think of anything except the time I had sneaked soap into the frying pan when Titi Ophelia was cooking and blamed it on a giant. But that had been a whole month ago. I quietly, very quietly, left the living room and wandered down the long, dark hall, past the kitchen and bathroom, past the framed pictures of John F. Kennedy, Martin Luther King, and Jesus, to the bedrooms. There were always two separate bedrooms for Abuelita and Papa Julio as long as I could remember. First was Papa Julio's room. Then was the bedroom I shared with Abuelita. And at the end of the hall was the back bedroom, where my brother Kevin was. He was kept in that room almost the whole time Abuelita wasn't home. And Abuelita was not home a lot. In the morning, she went out carrying containers of sopa de pollo and roca habichuela to the other hospital, where my great-grandmother was. And in the afternoon, she'd put on her long-sleeved white blouse and dark purple skirt and go to church. Sometimes she left after breakfast and didn't come home until it was time to cook for Papa Julio before he left for work. And I wasn't allowed to go into that back bedroom when Abuelita wasn't there. Oh, there couldn't be noise in the daytime because Papa Julio worked nights and needed his sleep. There couldn't be any noise at all or he'd be angry. Very, very angry. I'd been told this many times, but I was five years old. I wanted to play with my brother. I opened the door. Even though it was afternoon, the room was in shadow when the Venetian blinds were drawn. Kevin was standing in his playpen, holding the rail, jumping and gurgling. He was then two years old. He had already been speaking in complete sentences when we arrived at my grandmother's, but without my mother to talk with him, and with him being kept mostly in isolation, he had reverted back to baby talk. He also wasn't walking very well anymore, and I, I couldn't chase him like I used to. I looked in the playpen and saw one of Papa Julio's belts next to Kevin's bare feet. There was always a belt in the playpen. I went back and closed the door, and we played until the door opened again. And then I felt Papa Julio's large hand swing me by my ponytail and push me between him and the wall. I told you not to come in here. I told you I would punish you if I caught you. You are a bad girl, bad girl, bad girl, mala malissima, just like your mother. He pressed me against him while he reached for the belt in the playpen. He pulled down my pants and spanked me with one hand like he usually did. But this time, he rubbed the other hand against my behind and my peepee. He didn't always do both. Sometimes he would just yell, but not this time. 
I didn't cry. I never did. I didn't have to. Kevin did the crying for both of us. When it was, when it was over, Papa Julio said, you say nothing. Just like your mother. Then as quickly as it began, it was over. Both his hands retracted, and he pulled my pants back up and pushed me out of the room. I could still hear Kevin crying as the door closed. Papa Julio didn't look at or speak to me as he passed me in the hall and went back into his own room and shut the door. I continued walking down the long hall back to the living room. Carmen and Ophelia had left, and Dulce was still sitting on the couch and was now talking on the telephone. I climbed up on the couch next to her and tried to snuggle up, but she heard Kevin, and she hung up, and she left me and went to check on him. So everything would be okay for now. Dulce loved babies, and she would take care of Kevin, and she could stay with him and sing to him and put on the light and do everything she wanted to do because Papa Julio would never punish her. When the apartment was quiet again, I went back to the only thing I could control, my drawing. It was the one thing that had never abandoned or betrayed me, and if something wasn't right with the drawing, I could just erase it and start over. And I knew if only I kept trying, I could get that yarn to come out right. And when my mother saw the kittens, they would make her so happy that she would get well and come home. I worked at that yarn until I erased a hole right through the paper bag. The drawing was ruined. I went to crumple it up, but the kittens looked back at me. They looked too happy to give up. So I smoothed out the bag and picked up my pencil. I had to keep trying. You've been listening to Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. And that's our show for this week. If you like what you've heard today, please consider supporting this show or any other Radio Free Brooklyn show of your choice via Patreon. Just go to RadioFreeBrooklyn.com and see how. See you next week.